Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and it's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. We can look forward to more of that. (laughs) It's not a bad, more of a generalized Chicago accent than a specific impression, but, uh, you know. Dan Aykroyd's not really someone people impersonate, Josh. It's more, you know, I'm giving love to the Blues Brothers, the homage to the film, uh, you know, and that poster is pretty famous as well. Yeah, there's a lot of famous things that we'll, I'm sure, get into here because in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1980, and we are here at Jason's Pick, which, as he indicated, is the Blues Brothers. So um, I'll just turn it over to you, and you can do the rest of the podcast. Well, Josh, I'm going to talk like this the whole time. No, I'm not. So, <laughs> uh, Yeah, I guess you want to know why I picked the Blues Brothers. Is that a good place to start? Sure, we can start with that, or we can get into that later. I, I guess we can uh, give a brief Bye. intro on that. Well, how about we do a brief intro on the Blues Brothers uh, for those who don't know, you know, Aykroyd and Belushi, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd became huge stars on Saturday Night Live. Aykroyd was a lifelong fan of the blues and John Belushi got into it. They had their own like secret blues bar in New York City that like all the stars would go to after the show. And uh, they created this act, the Blues Brothers, which is those two and like this Uh, What they did was they got all great studio musicians or the band members from SNL. They debuted on SNL in uh, 1976 in uh, those B costumes, which uh, neither of them were happy about. But then they became so famous. The Blues Brothers became so famous. They actually opened an episode in 1978 where they had the quintessential suits that they're known for. Um, that was when Carrie Fisher hosted and they were so famous at this time. They were opening for like Steve Martin at arenas. Uh, their album had sold 3.5 million copies. So these get that's briefcase full of blues. These guys, the movie was going to happen. And here we are. Yeah. And that was one of the crazy things to me about this is that it wasn't just that these characters had been on Saturday night live. It was that this band i mean really as an actual band had become huge like you said they put out that album in 1978 they were touring they were playing for huge crowds it's so weird to me still that these guys as a band as a legitimate musical act were this popular and the movie was not just hey there have been characters on saturday night live that people like which is the case for pretty much every other saturday night live movie but this was a major concert draw and album selling act that was now it's, it's like making a movie with, I mean, not the Beatles, not at that level, but similar in that it's also just a successful musical act. And now we're going to put them in a movie. Yeah. It would be like if Lisa Kudrow had a number one hit with smelly cat and she was (laughs) selling out uh, arenas as Phoebe or something like that. It doesn't really happen. Right. Right. That is, that is crazy. I mean, it only happens with something like, Hannah Montana, maybe, where it's intended to be that way from the start and the the performer is already a musician. But it is a very weird phenomenon that I think I was not fully aware of how huge it was as a whole thing, as a whole musical phenomenon before the movie existed. Well, Josh, for this episode, I uh, was reading the book Wild and Crazy Guys how the comedy mavericks of the 80s changed Hollywood forever by Nick de Simelian, 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 Nick, Nick by Nick. Anyway, uh, he's got this great quote in there from John Landis, who directed the movie. It said uh, about this time at that moment, John and Danny were the stars of the number one TV show in the country, Saturday Night Live. John was the star of the number one movie in the country, Animal House. And as uh, and they had as the recording act, the number one record in the world. So uh, you can't really uh, find too many instances of that throughout pop cultural history. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. And so the movie, not surprisingly, was a success, although it had a bit of trouble getting there. It was one of these movies that kept constantly going over budget 
during its production. And Wikipedia cites 27.5 million as the budget, although in multiple reviews that I was looking up, the critics make reference to the budget being 30 million or more. So it's not clear exactly how much they spent, but certainly more than the studio initially intended. Yeah. Did- I got it at 32 million, Josh. And um, I know you're going to talk about the gross, but I want to tell you, I don't think it was um, a home run based on everything. The fact that they had to rush into production, there was no script, the budget kept ballooning. Um, and, you know, as we talked about, Heaven's Gate was one of these movies around this time where the same thing happened. And, you know, there was that backlash against it. So, you know, I think it's it uh, succeeded in spite of those obstacles. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I think before they went into production, it had, as you're just talking about, this kind of momentum between Saturday Night Live and the success of the album and the musical act that this was positioned to be something really successful. This was a movie of of something, of a property, of a pop culture figure that was already successful. Um, And despite those difficulties in production, it did succeed at the box office. It grossed $115.2 million and became the 10th highest grossing movie of 1980. And and of course, as we know, went on to have this long, long, long cultural life afterwards, even though, sadly, John Belushi died in 1982 and wasn't able to really participate in most of the later Blues Brothers activities. But this was a successful film. And it did capitalize on the success that the Blues Brothers already had. Yeah, I think if I'm not mistaken, this was the first comedy to make more money overseas than it did in the U.S. So that's pretty cool. That's, I think, something that John Landis has said. And and yeah, the Blues Brothers themselves have become an internationally known commodity. And 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 not surprisingly on that as well, that that music can travel really well. And one thing about this movie is that despite its origins in Saturday Night Live, it's not as much a comedy or it's not just a comedy. I mean, it's a lot of music and it's a lot of action and physical comedy and slapstick and the kinds of things that translate well internationally that a lot of American comedies that are more based on wordplay or more character driven or whatever don't usually make as much of an impact internationally. Everybody needs somebody to love, including the Germans, the Japanese, the French, uh, and the other territories where this did really well. <laughs> yes, big, big hit everywhere. Um, less, less of a big hit with critics, uh, although some, some liked it a lot. Gene Siskel actually was a huge fan of this movie and named it the eighth best movie of 1980. And I was trying to find, I don't know if Siskel and Ebert did a regular review of this. Uh, If they did, I couldn't find video of it. But I did find their episode on the best films of 1980 where Gene Siskel talks about how much he loved this movie. And he introduces it as his pick by saying that many people he knows might put it on their worst movies of 1980 list, but he loves it. And Roger Ebert, is not as enthused as Gene, but he's not certainly someone who's going to put it on the worst of the year list. And his review is mostly positive, if a little sort of baffled by it. So Roger Ebert in his written review said, this is some weird movie. There's never been anything that looked quite like it. Was it dreamed up in a junkyard? What's a little startling about this movie is that all of it works. The Blues Brothers cost untold millions of dollars and kept threatening to grow completely out of control. But director John Landis has somehow pulled it together, with a good deal of help from the strongly defined personalities of the title characters. Belushi and Aykroyd come over as hard-boiled city guys, total cynics with a worldview of sublime simplicity, and that all fits perfectly with the movie's other parts. There's even room, in the midst of the carnage and mayhem, for a surprising amount of grace, humor, and whimsy. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, Siskel said it was the best movie ever shot in Chicago. <laughs> so that's high praise from him. And uh, yes. I think you, you know, you were kind of touching on it as well, Josh. It is, I mean, he tried to make the biggest car chase of all time. You have these Busby Berkeley style musical numbers, right? Um, there are those action sequences. So like it's it's a mix of all these genres. It's like they said, like, yeah, let's just do everything we want and put it in a movie. And that could go horribly wrong. But uh, in my mind, this went uh, very right. 
Yeah, well, certainly in in Gene Siskel's mind, and as well as in the minds of obviously the movie going public in 1980, it it did for me remind me of stuff like it's a mad, 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 mad world and the great race. These movies in the 1960s that were ostensibly comedies, but were based around these huge set pieces and also literal like car chases and crashes and stuff like that and cramming in as many cameos as possible and recognizable faces. And I, I found those movies kind of exhausting and I sort of felt the same way about this film too, which uh, is not necessarily an uncommon reaction. So Variety in their unbylined review said, if Universal had made it 35 years earlier, the Blues Brothers might have been called Abbott and Costello in Soul Town. The level of inspiration is about the same now as then. The humor as basic, the enjoyment as fleeting. The film's greatest pleasure comes from watching the likes of James Brown, Cab Calloway, Ray Charles, and especially Aretha Franklin do their musical things. Given all the chaos, director, and with Aykroyd, co-writer John Landis, manages to keep things reasonably controlled and in a straight line. Pick plays as a spirited tribute by white boys to black musical culture, which was the inspiration for the Blues Brothers act in the first place. So there's a quote from Dan Aykroyd. I wrote a heavy urban experience. What Landis did was put a little Disney flash into it. And that blend worked really well. And I think, you know, we see that. And then also the musical number. I will say that basically all of the reviews that I looked at, whether they were positive or negative, and some of which that I, I didn't end up quoting here, basically all of them cite the number with Aretha Franklin as a highlight of the film, in some cases in the more negative reviews as the only highlight of the film. And, and I agree that that to me was the one musical number that just absolutely blew me away and, and was fantastic and I would have been happy to see more of. Well, I think all the musical numbers were great. I obviously loved the Cab Calloway one. We talked about this on... Uh, on the Cotton Club, my love for Cab Calloway. And I think that that really ratchets the whole situation up, the way they're walking in rhythm to the music and getting there. It was really kind of a fun act three. But I like the Ray Charles one. I like all that stuff, Josh. Um, what I was going to say is the script. That's what we were talking about. Dan Aykroyd had never written a script before. He turned in a 324-page script that had diatribes about each of like the backstories of each of the band members and all this crazy stuff. So it was uh, it was a wild and crazy movie experience to make, but they made it. And whether you diaper babies liked it or not, it was a success. <laughs> it was certainly a success, although I'm glad that they didn't make the 325-page script directly. I'm glad that John Landis, as a professional, came in and took charge and put it back on track. I feel like that's something that John Landis does going back to when we previously talked about him, when we talked about Kentucky Fried Movie. And I think there was a similar thing there, right? With the Zucker brothers who hadn't made a movie before and they got Landis to come in as someone who was a professional and knew how to get things on track to help them make their movie. And that seems almost like what he's doing here as well on a much larger scale. I think, uh, you know, you and I have argued about John Landis before and, uh, I, I still say he was the major figure of comedy directing in the 80s. And um, yeah, he, he he went for it all the time, to, uh, sometimes to uh, great success and other times to great horror. Yes. Well, <laughs> we'll talk about that more later, I'm sure. So finally, on the definitely negative end of the spectrum here, Janet Maslin in The New York Times said, there isn't a moment of the Blues Brothers that wouldn't have been more enjoyable if it had been mounted on a simpler scale. This essentially modest movie is reported to have cost about $30 million. And what did all that money buy? Scores of car crashes, too many extras, overstaged dance numbers, and a hollowness that certainly didn't come cheap. A film that moved faster and called less attention to its indulgences might never convey, as the Blues Brothers does in all but its jolliest moments, such unqualified despair. So, mm. and she, she really digs into it in the rest of her review as well. I would not a fan. I would like to see all these people who gave it negative reviews, what they thought of Animal House, um, because... Obviously, the indulgence is there, too, and it's taken up a notch here in some ways. Right. And uh, I just think, you know, these, as we have said, like they're building a new brand of comedy and maybe these uh, 
these noodle heads don't really get it. You noodle head Maslin. <laughs> yeah, that may be true. And I, I don't, I don't remember. It's possible. I'm sure these reviews at least make reference to Animal House. And I, I'm not sure if this or some of the other negative reviews were saying negative things about Animal House. And I am personally not really a fan of Animal House, but I will say that the excessiveness of Animal House is just in kind of the vulgarity, is in the raunchiness and the silliness of the comedy. And the excessiveness that's going on here is all not in the comedy, which I think is, to me, kind of the frustrating thing. And that maybe you have to recalibrate your expectations that this movie is not really a comedy. But to me, all of the, like, sure, it's great that they staged the the biggest car crashes ever or they crash the most cars ever in a movie um but i don't it's not funny and it to me didn't contribute to what the story was essentially about and even even in the siskel and ebert episode where siskel is naming this as one of the best movies of the year ebert basically says like why is this happening you know one one cop car crashing into another can be funny is it funnier is it better if it's 20 cars crashing into 20 other cars and and i i agree with you i mean did that would that would you have liked it better if it was one cop car crashing into another i don't understand why that makes a difference. I would have liked it better if it had 80% fewer car chases slash crashes. This is what I, the movie is, man. I mean, the whole Bluesmobile, the, they literally set it up in the beginning of the movie. The Bluesmobile, this new Bluesmobile is there because of what it can do as a vehicle for them. So they utilize it throughout. Well, right. I understand that for whatever reason, Dan Aykroyd and John Landis decided that the best thing for their movie about two comedic blues singers was to make it a car chase movie, but I didn't find the appeal of that at all. I mean, it's not a car chase movie. You could say it's a road movie, but you could say, like I said, it's an action movie. It's a musical. It's all these different things rolled into one. What what you're saying is you, it just didn't work for you as a... Uh, as a, 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 a the sum is not greater than uh, the parts for you on this one, but I think it's great. I mean, I love, obviously I picked it. So, you know, uh, well, right. I, and I, I realized that you love it and I know many, many people love it, but I did not love it. And, and that was one of the things that I just watching this was, I knew that it had this reputation for all the crazy car chases and car crashes, but I think I didn't quite realize how, big all of that would be and how much time it would take up and how tired I would get of it so quickly. Well, um, I mean, you know, in the beginning when Jake gets out of prison, you can see the way he's shooting these guys are like mythical heroes, right? Jake's right. there and the, the backlights on him and, you know, then you see Elwood against the car and it's like, there. this is, you know, the original title was called The Return of the Blues Brothers, but it's like, it's not an origin story, but it's the next phase of an origin story, right? So, like, there, it's a superhero movie in in its own way, right? I mean, that's what it is. Whether you think they're heroes or not, right? That's the way this movie was in 1980, right? To lay these guys out like they're superheroes. Yeah, sure. That's what they're trying to do. I, I didn't care for it. So, uh, Jason, you love this movie. When did you first see it? I mean, this was just prevalent throughout my childhood. It was always on television and it was one of those movies, whenever it was on, I could just leave it on no matter what part it came on at and, and just enjoy it uh, because I like life and I like fun things. And, um, <laughs> you know, that's me, guys. But Josh is here, too, and he's going to give his opinion. He had never seen it before. And uh, maybe that says a lot of uh, why he ended up the way he did. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. And it's it's weird because, you know, we're, we're the same age. And so I'm sure this was on TV in in my childhood. Also. Constantly. Yeah. And I don't know why I never watched it or I never thought that I wanted to watch it because certainly I saw other Dan Aykroyd comedies and, and was entertained by them. But and I would have been very aware of how famous the movie is. And I enjoyed watching some Saturday Night Live stuff. So I'm sure I flipped past it on TNT or Comedy Central or whatever numerous times and never decided to stop and watch it. And I think I've mentioned this before on the show, probably when we talked about John Landis in, in Kentucky Fried Movie. For some reason, I did see Blues Brothers 2000, the very, very bad sequel from 1998 with both of my parents as some kind of like family outing. I don't know why we decided for family movie night that that was the movie to see. So 
by that point, I hadn't seen the original and maybe because Blues Brothers 2000 is so bad, I thought, well, I'm not going to see more of this. But yeah, I'm not sure why it passed me by. I feel like this has come up a lot in reference to especially comedies from this era. I mean, it was the same thing when we talked about Caddyshack, which I'm sure was on TV a million times when I was a kid and I just never bothered with it. I'm also surprised because, Josh, your dad is from Chicago. Yes. You're both your parents were into college around Chicago, right? Like, so, you know, I'm surprised you're, you know, I know what a Cubs fan your dad is. I'm surprised he didn't be like, hey, hey, boy, sit down and watch this movie with me, boy, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if my dad is a fan of this movie. He may be. Um, he's more of, he's less of a comedy guy and more of an action movie guy. I think I've said, you know, growing up, he was, he watched a lot of Westerns, a lot of James Bond movies. I know he likes film noir and not to say that he doesn't like comedy, but I don't recall him ever saying anything about being a fan of this movie. Yeah. But as we said, there's plenty of action in this movie. That is true. So maybe he does like it, but not to the level of him ever trying to kind of rope me into watching it. But he is, he is from Chicago, grew up there, still lives there part-time. So uh, I'm sure he's well aware of the mythology of the Blues Brothers. And Dave had seen it as a kid once and didn't like it from what I read on his letterbox. When I was on letterbox, go for Jason. Follow me on letterbox. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I you know like a lot of the Ackroyd and Belushi type stuff from the 80s, but this was the one that I never really connected with uh, when I was a kid. I, I don't remember if I saw it more than once, but definitely at least that one time. So I, I kind of thought I would like it more now as an adult, but not really. What the heck, man? You're the music guy. What the heck? <laughs> I know. I just, I, I expected it to be a comedy. And like Josh is saying. It is a I, comedy. I I, it's so funny don't... to me that you guys keep saying that. It's so enjoyable. And there's so many funny moments. I don't get it. What do you I think? I, I think I laughed once while yeah. watching this film. So Ugh, that was know. the other thing. But yeah, I'm I'm surprised that Dave didn't like it because this seems like Dave's kind of movie. If- yeah, and I, I love so many things about it. I, I actually wrote down like I think this is like the ultimate I appreciate it more than I like it movie. You know, there's so much about it that I really love. I love the idea of two guys just playing out their fantasies of just getting together all these soul musicians and uh, blowing up cars. Like that's such a great thing to do with your fame, but uh, it just doesn't <laughs> add up. Right. I mean, that's to to me, like, you're right. But on the other hand, this very much feels like that kind of vanity project. Like we're so famous that we can do anything we want. So we're going to indulge in all of our personal esoteric interests. And to me, I never felt really invited into it. I mean, I just think that's totally, you know, for instance, just to personalize this as my history as a blues musician. No, um, but you know, like, as you guys know, I'm, I wrote a comedy recently that I'm trying to get financed. And in the first draft, it's a wild comedy, but I'm like, you know what? I should add a bar fight. And people are like, that's going to add like 15,000 extra dollars. And I'm like, yeah, but I want to shoot a bar fight. And then it's like, you know, I want to shoot these fantasy sequences. So I, as you know, appreciate these like big shots where people are like throwing in all the stuff that they like. And like I said, in this, I mean, I don't know. There's just a very big disconnect here because um, I guess with the, the critics too, because it is, you know, it was a huge hit. It was a uh, part of pop culture and our childhood and, there are people who love it, and um, and then there are you guys. So I don't know, but there are <laughs> definitely people who hate it. So I did, I I'm surprised that uh, I'm not getting more love on this one, and um, we're not friends anymore. Yeah, and I I wouldn't say that I hated it. I I right, felt just sort of distant from it. Nothing, very little of it engaged me. Is is the way that I felt about it, but. I definitely did not hate this movie. I feel like it would be hard to really hate this movie because it's so wanting to be liked. And <laughs> and 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 Aykroyd and Belushi are endearing. Like the fact that this is what they wanted to do with their fame, that this is their vanity project is endearing because it's not the kind of narcissistic thing that you would necessarily expect from something like that. So I certainly don't hate it. Well, I mean, you know, you keep calling it a vanity project, but again, like um, while I'm sure they wanted to make the movie people were clamoring for them to make the movie because true. of how famous they were. You true, know, the true. Yes, and that is, but it's what it is, is that their vanity project, which is the Blues Brothers itself, became hugely popular. But it started as these huge comedy stars saying, you know what? We'd like to be blues musicians. Even though we're not, that's what we really want to do. And we're super famous, so we're just going to do it. And people responded to it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's and it worked. And I think, you know, um, 
to give them credit, they they got like the best musicians they could find and really worked hard at putting together a good band. They did indeed. So do you want to talk about anything in the background here? Anything else from uh, books that you've read? Uh, maybe you guys should read a book on how to have fun. <laughs> that's that's really the best way to have fun is to read a book about how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, let's come back and talk about our general thoughts on the Blues Brothers. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1980, we are talking about Jason's pick, The Blues Brothers. And, and Jason, I feel like you've really talked a lot about what you like about this movie, but uh, is there anything else specifically that you just think is fantastic here? Yeah, I mean, going right from the beginning, I think, you know, it's interesting because like, right, there are things you could trim, right? Like even the the opening sequence is... Um, John Belushi, Joliet, Jake walking out of prison, right? And you see, like, he shoots this thing like it's um, uh, it's not a comedy. It's an epic film, right? He's shooting, like, you know, low-angle shots, so you see him, like, walking and all these kind of uh, jib shots and, and everything, and you're like, all right, well, he's really just going for it, you know, here. So, you know, from there, we get them going back home to the nun, the penguin, Sister Mary Stigmata, and I think that scene's very funny where she's just beating them with rulers and, you know, and they, you know, they, they go to this black church and James Brown is giving the sermon. And, uh, as I tell my daughter, if I was ever going to go to church, I'd want to go to black church because of the music. So I, I love all that sure. stuff. And I think, um, you know, that sequence is very funny with all the flips and the dancing and, and whatnot. And the whole thing just, you know, kind of goes from there, these car chases where they drive the Nazis off the road and, um, the country Western stuff like that. I could just go over the whole thing, but it's just an enjoyable watch for me, literally from beginning to end. Um, do you watch this with your daughter? No. Oh, okay. Cause I'm, but she's, uh, she's part Jewish and part, uh, Christian. And I always tell her if I was going to go to church, I would go to black church, even though I don't go to church. Cause I'm not Christian you're Jewish, yeah. <laughs> but I would go to black church if anyone wants to invite me. So. Okay, that's great. Thanks, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> All our uh, black church listeners, come on. Yes, I'm sure. Yes. But no, I was just wondering about that because this is an R-rated movie, and I guess it's got swearing, but the violence is basically Looney Tunes-esque. Yeah, comedic. Yeah. And there's no nudity or sex or anything. So I was wondering, since you love this movie so much, if it was a movie that you would introduce to your daughter. Yeah, I think I will. And I think it's appropriate for her. I don't really think there's anything bad in here, you know. Um, why is it rated R, I wonder? I'm guessing because of the language. Um, That's the only thing I could think of. Yeah, and certainly not in 1980 did they care about smoking for that. So that's, yeah, that's all I can imagine that there's, if they say the F word like two times, then that's an automatic R. So that's probably what it is. It's uh, interesting to me because like, I like all the comedy, like, you know, where uh, Carrie Fisher's trying to blow them up and they just no sell the whole thing. And, um, you know, they go and play the country and Western bar and they have to play the theme from Rawhide. And then, um, you know, uh, what's the next song they play, uh, after that show? Stand, stand by your, yeah, man, stand by right? your man. Yeah. It's hilarious that they're doing that. So, um, and as we said, we've mentioned all the big musical numbers. I like them all. I love the Cab Calloway one the most, but the Aretha one's great. The Ray Charles one's great. And the, and the James Brown one's great. And I like that they have John Lee Hooker in the street playing too. So I don't know, man. Um, yeah, we're just on different pages of uh, the Blues Brothers here. We are. Yeah, I mean, I will say the musical numbers, the Aretha Franklin one, like I said, just to me, that was far and away the best. But the musical numbers are generally good when they get those guest stars, when they've got Aretha Franklin, when they've got Ray Charles, when they've got John Lee Hooker, Cab Calloway, et cetera. The Blues Brothers themselves, I was not particularly into when what they were doing musically. I can't imagine wanting to see the Blues Brothers perform on television or live or on record or whatever. But not that they are incompetent, but they're not, there's nothing remarkable about these guys as musical performers. And that's fine. They're comedians, they're actors, they're not musicians per se. But even as a musical, I felt like this was moderately enjoyable at best. I think that what what carries them as a musical act, like we said, is they have such a strong backing band. And then, um, like you said, they're they're talented enough. 
as musicians, but what, what they are is they just have so much charisma and personality to them that people want to have this party with them. Sure. They're definitely charismatic guys. And I mean, I think weirdly, I'm complaining that, so Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi are not great musicians. And so their musical numbers are not the best. And then conversely, all of these musicians that they recruit, so all the members of their backing band and, and big, the main storyline here is quote, getting the band back together, right? Jake Blues has been released from prison reunites with his brother Elwood. They go to the orphanage. They learn that they need to save the orphanage. They need $5,000 or the orphanage is going to get demolished. So in order to get this money, they decide to reunite the Blues Brothers band and perform gigs and make this money. It's a very dubious plan. But that is essentially the plot. It's a very simple plot and involves lots of crashing of cars. So they're going around to all the different members of the band and, and recruiting them and convincing them that they're going to join. And these are all these great studio musicians, Jason, as you said, that they've recruited in real life to be part of the band. And none of them are actors, really. And there's a varying level of quality to their performances. Some of them do all right. But well, I mean, we have very little. I mean, they, they don't really ever focus on any of those actors, really. I mean, on any of those musicians as actors, like, you know, I don't think any of them are, uh, they're not really characters, they're background players, right? So, you know. Well, and that's part of the problem too, is that they aren't really characters, yet we have to care about what they're going to do because the, the, the crux of the plot is we need to convince these guys to join us to perform again so that we can raise the money. So, but I think they do get, some of them at least, get some relatively substantial dialogue scenes or things to do. I mean, the one the one thing that I laughed at actually came from, I forget his name, but the one porn player who is now working as a maitre d' at a super fancy restaurant. Alan Rubin. I think that's Alan Rubin. There you go. But um, he has one one random line where he's he's on the phone with some customer and he says, no, ma'am, May- Mayor Daly doesn't eat here anymore. He's dead. And I don't know why, but that was the only thing I laughed at in the entire movie. Um, but his performance where he has to be very, like he has to be the straight man to the Blues Brothers who come into his fancy restaurant and, and cause chaos. And I felt like he stepped up there to the point where I was wondering, oh, is that guy actually not a musician? And maybe he's an actor who they got to mime playing the horn or something. And no, he is just, he's a musician like the rest of them. So he did a good job. And he gets, maybe because they saw that he could do more, they gave him more of a comedy bit to do. But other other ones too, I feel like it does kind of halt the momentum when these guys have to talk. No, I mean, they barely ever talk though. I mean, it's not like Space Jam where you're giving all these basketball players lines. So this is what I don't understand. You're like, there's, there's, they go and the Blues Brothers uh, tell them they're getting the band back together. And then there's a crazy situation that happens around them that's focused more on either Aretha Franklin or, you know, Jake and Elwood. And it's like these guys, they utilize them as band members. You know, it's very simple. Like, hey, save the orphanage, get the band back together, go save the day. Yeah, I will give you this. It is better than Space Jam. So it's just like, I mean, your complaints are weird. You're complaining about the the musicians who acted. And I'm like, they barely had any acting to do. There was like, I don't know how that could hold you up so much for this one. Well, I mean, I think part of the problem is that they barely had any acting to do. Like I said, the whole plot is based around the idea of we got to get these guys back. We got to convince them. And they're and not they do. characters. And they do. Right. There's very little... Uh, arc or conflict here, which is okay for a movie that's just goofy, but it's so goddamn long too. It's two hours and 15 minutes. It could have been 40 minutes shorter. I would have liked it a lot more. Sure. Yeah. I'm not going to argue. I like, I liked it. So this doesn't bother me that it's long, but most of the time I do agree with you. So sure. That's a fair point, but you know, it could have been edited shorter. Obviously, like we said, this was a time of excess for these guys and they're all going for it in that way. I'm just, I'm just like totally not on the same page as you because it's like, on the one hand, you're like, well, we know they can't act. So giving them more acting wouldn't be a good idea. And on the other hand, what we do instead is put the crux on the scene on Ackroyd, Belushi, and maybe some of those musical stars. And that works. So, you know, I don't know why you don't, why that's such a problem for you. Well, I think the problem is that there's no support. There are no real supporting characters. Carrie Fisher could have been removed entirely from the movie and had made no difference whatsoever. 
When John Candy first showed up, I thought, oh, great. John Candy is in this. I didn't realize that. He's going to do some funny stuff. He's going to be their nemesis. He appears like three times and does almost nothing. Um, he it, says, orange whip, orange whip, three <laughs> orange whips. He does do that. He does do that. But that's the thing. Like, fine. We don't need those musicians to act. We don't need them to have character arcs. They're great musicians. They play music very well. Uh, we need something. Jake and Elwood are so deadpan that they don't really feel like characters either to me. And they don't have emotional arcs or whatever. So I wasn't invested at all in what would happen. And it's a very simple plot. And you know that it's going to work out. And that's fine. And so I think the entertainment value of it comes from the musical numbers and the crazy stunts. And that stuff just didn't do enough for me to make up for it. Yeah. All right. I mean, we don't need to go in circles on it. I, I do agree with you that they're deadpan. I enjoyed that stuff. I mean, like I said, like to me, it's the journey, right? Like I like the country and Western stuff. I like when they're traveling around getting these guys. I like the joy of the music numbers. I obviously like that they're knocking Nazis off of bridges, you know, and um, I, I like just how bombastic that whole third act is. Like when they're driving around, like, you know, tonight, the fabulous Bruce Brothers Rhythm and Soul Review, like I'm rooting for them at that point. And I like, you know, um, as I said, the Cab Calloway thing where they throw it back and they're all in like um, Cotton Club style era um, outfits. And, you know, we get to that and we get to the big climax, which has the 103 cars crashing or whatever. Or, and then, you know, the hut, 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 the SWAT team and Steven Spielberg's cameoing. Who doesn't want that? Right. So, look. It's funny because, Josh, um, I was reading this quote by John Landis, and he, he was saying around this time, if you went past $24 million, that was kind of like, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Like, And no movies would do that, right? Because Cleopatra did that. And um, But around this time, 1941, The Blues Brothers, Heaven's Gate, Apocalypse Now, and Star Trek all went. So five movies, and two of them we know like were very big failures. And the other three... Uh, did did fine and this was one that that succeeded yeah have you seen 1941 jason you know it's one of the few spielberg movies i've never seen but they say just the comedy have you seen it yes it's very bad and uh, yeah. i saw it uh so this is a di digression but a fellow critic Je jeff howard jeffrey k howard the vegas film critic who is the head of Jason's uh, enemies, the Las Vegas Film Critics <laughs> oh, Society. The head of the Las Vegas Conmen Society. Yeah. So he is weirdly a huge fan of 1941, so much so that at one time when I told him I had never seen it, he bought me the DVD so that I could watch it. And I hadn't realized he bought me the DVD of the extended cut. So I watched two and a half hours or something of 1941 it is very bad. It's very bad. Well, you know, it just goes to show what crooks you guys are over there. Um, but um, yeah, I know that's supposed to be a bad movie and you know that I don't think we've seen Spielberg really attempt a comedy since then. Right. So yeah, not really something like uh, catch me if you can maybe, or, or the terminal or sort of comedic, but not, not yeah. comedy to the, that same. Level. Right. But this yeah. was his, that was him trying to move over into this space. And the fact that like he's cameoing in the blues brothers shows not just that he wants to move to that space, but just how big of a deal this movie was and how big of a director John Landis was, which he refused to admit. Well, I think it's maybe more because both Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi are in 1941 and he probably was friendly with them at that point. I mean, you say your thing, I say my thing. <laughs> I want to know, speaking of, of, of length, Jason, I, when I rented this movie, I noticed, at least on Vudu, that it had both the theatrical version and the extended version, which is 15 minutes longer. Did you watch or have you ever watched the extended version? No, I um, I think that was probably like the director's first cut, right? And everything before they trimmed it. And I don't know. I, I, I would have. I would have been happy to. But, you know, usually for what we do here on Awesome Movie Year, we're trying to see what people saw in the theater. So I just yes. watched the um, regular version. But um, it's just more cars crashing. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, that's so. just 15 more minutes <laughs> so. ago. It wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. No, look, I'm not... I mean, what it comes down to is like your criticisms. I'm not even disagreeing with them. Like we could have taken Carrie Fisher out. Right. But they wanted explosions and stuff in there. Right. And I think probably Carrie Fisher and Dan Aykroyd were like an item at this point yeah, in time. Yeah, right. They were. Yeah. So, you know, he's going to write her in and everything. Right. Well, he so. could have written her a better part that had more impact on the story and was a character that actually had 
depth to it. I'm sure Carrie Fisher would have been happy to play a more substantial character. Sure. But she was there as a device for humor, right? Both in what she was doing throughout and then her last scene with Juliet Jake. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, look, I, I mean, we're just on uh, like the line is here. We're not disagreeing <laughs> on certain things that we're saying. It's just that you see it one way and I see it the other way. And Dave yeah. uh, sees it your way and just should tell you that I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, Dave is, is there anything that you liked about this movie particularly more uh, that you would like to mention or that we haven't highlighted? I mean, not really. I, I like the musical performances probably more than you, Josh. We we know that you don't really like musical performances in movies that much, but uh, I, I especially like that Cab Calloway one that Jason keeps bringing up. Like I said, there, there's so many good things. Like the idea of insane over-the-top crash cars, funny, great. You know, Carrie Fisher shooting flamethrowers or rocket launchers, whatever. Funny, but it just didn't all add up to anything for me. Yeah. All right. Well, shall we rate this, Jason? Yeah. Let's rate it out of uh, five pairs of Ray-Ban sunglasses, shall we? Sounds so, good. Nice. Yes. It still gets uh, four four pairs of Ray-Bans from this guy because I'm on a mission from God to tell you how good of a film this is. Well, that's good. It's your pick. I'm glad that you still like it, that it held up. I'm going to give it two and a half pairs of Ray-Bans. Like I said, I didn't hate it. It, it. it just didn't do anything for me. So, Dave? Yeah, two and a half here, too. I think that's the right amount for, you know, something that just doesn't really quite do anything for you. Yeah. Well, Josh, let's come back and talk about the legacy of the Blues Brothers after I change your diapers. <laughs> okay. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1980, we have been talking about Jason's pick, The Blues Brothers. And we mentioned a bit of the legacy of this film. Um, to me, the amazing legacy is, again, the sheer popularity of The Blues Brothers as a musical act. Uh, they had had these hit albums and they toured opening for the Grateful Dead and were hugely popular on their face, not as comedians, but as a musical act. And unfortunately, John Belushi died in 1982, so he wasn't able to participate. But the Blues Brothers have continued in various forms with Dan Aykroyd, joined at different times by John Goodman and Jim Belushi as the second uh, brother. Different... It's usually the three of them together, right? I think it's been the three of them together. I think John Goodman has participated less in a lot of the concert tours and stuff like that because he's busy being an actually successful working actor <laughs> and Jim Belushi <laughs> has more time on his hands maybe. But yes, it's often been the three of them. And I was amazed they performed at the Super Bowl halftime show in yeah. 1997. I, I remember it. It wasn't very good. I'm not so. surprised that it wasn't. So, and they they continue to tour mainly, I think, with with Dan Aykroyd and Jim Belushi. And Jim Belushi has really taken the lead on a lot of these things. I, I remember sadly for for an article I watched the reality show about Jim Belushi becoming a cannabis farmer and he was really really invested in getting the Blues Brothers name on his cannabis brand and he had to essentially go beg Dan Aykroyd to allow him to use it. It was really kind of sad. Actually. Meanwhile, isn't Dan Aykroyd like a um he's a spirits impresario, right? At this point in time, whiskey yeah. or vodka, bourbon. the cr yeah. crystal crystal head vodka. Yeah, Dan Aykroyd is a weird weird guy. Yeah. Um, but uh, and we talked about him with all the paranormal stuff and Ghostbusters, but he seems to succeed no matter what he does. Yeah, he's been successful. And, and I said this on Letterboxd, but between the Blues Brothers and Ghostbusters, it's it's a testament to just how insanely famous Dan Aykroyd was and popular he was in the 1980s, that he can take these two kind of esoteric interests of his, the paranormal and old rhythm and blues, and somehow transform them into massive blockbuster movies. Like, that's power. Yeah. And I mean, look, Josh, not just that, like blues music wasn't popular when this was happening, right? right like This right. led to a whole resurgence of blues music. Uh, Ray-Ban sunglasses, as we mentioned, you know, like <laughs> these guys like were the and, you know, this whole decade and this year is like kind of the beginning or I guess really Animal House was of like the beginning of remaking comedy in Hollywood with this new kind of frat style of comedy. Right. So 
we have to look at it in that regard too. These weren't like comedies that were being made before this was going on. Yeah. And both Dan Aykroyd and John Landis, as you said, became these huge, huge forces of blockbuster comedy in the 1980s. Uh, they worked together again in Trading Places and uh, Spies Like Us. And of course, Dan Aykroyd also had the Ghostbusters movies. He had Dragnet, which I remember loving as a kid with Tom Hanks. John Landis directed Coming to America and Three Amigos. And uh, then as we alluded to the Twilight, Twilight Zone, the movie where some, some bad stuff happened there. And I know we talked about John Landis when we did Kentucky Fried Movie and his career definitely tapered off there and, and Aykroyd's as well. But in the 80s, they were the height of that, not just comedy, but that maximalist, like comedy as blockbuster spectacle. Business. Yeah, no one was mm -hmm. going to cut their budgets, right? So Landis, uh, you know, I had mentioned Into the Night before. I mean, he's got a whole genre named after a movie that he, you know, made. Uh, he did the two Michael Jackson videos, Thriller and Black or White, uh, you know, which are not just iconic, but two of the most influential music videos of all time. And now he is directing Superhero Kindergarten on the Cartoon Channel, K-A-R-T-O-O-N. <laughs> I don't know what that is. I don't. But. I don't either. Yeah, he hasn't. He hasn't directed a movie since 2010 when he made a movie called Burke and Hare. And I think I. I yeah, we saw it. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I don't. Did you see it with me? I feel like I talked about this, and when we did Kentucky Fried Movie, because I saw it at a film festival here where John Landis was there. Yeah, and, I think I taught. I saw it then too. Okay, because he did this great. Q&A afterwards that was just a career overview for like an hour. And I usually hate those things, but he was pretty fascinating and funny. I remember talking there. I used to have the same manager as him. So maybe I could write on superhero kindergarten maybe starring so. Arnold Schwarzenegger. I want to say, you know, uh, we talked about Dan Aykroyd there, Josh, but like who has two golden raspberries, one for Caddyshack 2, well-earned and one for nothing but trouble, which I don't remember, thankfully. But, you know, he does have... Uh, Sneakers and My Girl, and we talked about him in Driving Miss Daisy, but two of my favorite parts, Tommy Boy, and of course, one of my all-time favorite movies, Gross Point Blank, he's essential to. Yeah, Gross Point Blank is great, and he's really good in that, and his dynamic with John Cusack in that is great. And he certainly works all the time. And like you said, he's a very, very successful entrepreneur, whether it's his vodka brand or having co-founded the House of Blues, which he's no longer involved with, but I'm sure he got a lot of money selling his stake in that, which is an extremely successful chain of restaurants and concert venues. So Dan Aykroyd doing very, very well, even if he's not in a lot of big movies, these days, he's really, really, really trying to get the Ghostbusters to be revived and with with mixed success on that front. He was nominated for an Oscar for Driving Miss Daisy, as, as we talked about when we did our episode there. And if we want to talk about Saturday Night Live, he rode the sort of second wave of SNL movies by making a Coneheads movie in 1993, which I've seen, I think is pretty bad. Yeah, I didn't like that either. But, you know, he is... You know, look, we talked about um, the kind of National Lampoon and Saturday Night Live and Second City on the Caddyshack episode. And, and you always think of Aykroyd and Belushi in those uh, aspects, if not in all three and two of those. And obviously, we didn't get to see much more of uh, John Belushi after that. Have you ever seen Neighbors where the two basically reverse roles? No, that is one of the two films that John Belushi made after this before he passed away in 82, the other one called Continental Divide. And I have not seen either of those films or really I'm not familiar with them at all. Yeah, I've, I saw Neighbors and, um, you know, nobody thought it was good, including me when I saw it. But I would like to rewatch it just because I know they did. They did the uh, switching of the casting where it's like, oh, Dan Aykroyd, you'd usually play this and John Belushi, you usually play this. So let's reverse those. But I think, you know. Aykroyd, for as well as he did, you know, he probably thought that those two would be working together forever. Like it was going to be, like you said, Abbott and Costello was going to be Belushi and Aykroyd. Yeah, they were very good friends, of course, and collaborators. And uh, I'm sure you're right that Dan Aykroyd expected that. And weirdly, I feel like he kind of shifted and just decided to pick up Jim Belushi instead as like the next best thing. Um, ah, no, he went, you know, come on, Bill Murray and, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's done a lot of great things. But I think it's interesting that Jim Belushi just sort of stepped in in, in the Blues Brothers capacity, at least, and, and ran with that. Well, that makes sense. He was his brother. And that that totally makes sense. You know, yeah. 
So Jason, given how much you love the Blues Brothers, have you seen Blues Brothers 2000? No, and I don't want to see it. And I don't think John Landis wants me to see it. Um, you know, he said that basically the studio kneecapped him when they were trying to make the movie. Although he did get to crash 104 cars in that one. And do you know what movie has the record now for the most cars crashed, Josh? I mean, I looked it up like you did. So I, I know it's a, is it G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra? Yes, starring Dan Aykroyd and Jim Belushi. Yeah, amazing how that worked out. Yeah. Directed by John Landis. What's sad is, you know, we mentioned, you know, we mentioned John Belushi, but all these guys, you know, Carrie Fisher, John Candy. I mean, they're all uh, they're all gone now, and it's sad. And you know, the, the, they all obviously Carrie Fisher left a huge legacy as an actress and a writer, and John Candy was as big a comedy star as there could have been in the 80s. Yeah, both of those people died young, sadly. And I'm sure a lot of the music, I didn't go through looking up every one of the musicians here. I mean, certainly a lot of the big famous ones like Ray Charles and Cab Calloway and Aretha Franklin, they're not around anymore. But um, I think some of the studio musicians are still, they're still going. They A lot of them, I think, still play with Dan Aykroyd and Jim Belushi when they play as the Blues, Blues Brothers in various capacities. Steve Cropper and Donald Duck Dunn were Stax Records musicians and half of Booker T and the MGs, so that's pretty cool. Uh, the horn players, Lou Marini, Tom Malone, and Alan Rubin, who we talked about as the MC uh, uh, or the maitre d', I think, were in Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And then... Um, Willie Hall, the drummer, backed Isaac Hayes, and Matt Murphy was on a ton of blues stuff. So, you know, like we said, they really, they didn't just say like, hey, we're going to half-ass this. They got the best band together that they could. Oh, yeah. And stellar credentials, like no criticism of the musical abilities of all of those guys, all extremely talented musicians, and they all do a great, a great job. Josh, you know, you mentioned that they have like rebooted Ghostbusters. Can you see Aykroyd trying to reboot a younger generation? Um you know, with like Justin Bieber and somebody else as the new Blues Brothers. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because for two reasons. One, clearly Aykroyd likes doing that kind of stuff, considering how hard he's worked on making that happen with Ghostbusters. And two, because he essentially did do that in Blues Brothers 2000, that in addition to John Goodman and Joe Morton as the adult Blues Brothers, it features the most annoying kid Blues Brother played by <laughs> J. Evan Bonifant, who I don't know what he's gone on to do, but he's like 10 years old in this movie and he's a little pint-sized Blues Brother with his sunglasses and his hat. And oh my God, they're trying so hard to make this kid happen. Yeah, so, yeah absolutely. I'm sure that in his mind, Dan Aykroyd thought, here is the next generation of Blues Brothers and he's going to go on to take this legacy to the next level. And it didn't work, but... It's been 24 years since Blues Brothers 2000, so people have forgotten, and they like this brand, so absolutely I can see him. Yeah, again. just cast those kids from Stranger Things or something, but uh, the soundtrack sold 3 million copies, and the anime, the manga, Narima Daikon Brothers, is uh, influenced by the Blues Brothers. You ever see Narima Daikon Brothers? Is it an anime or a manga? Those are two different things. It's one of them. <laughs> Okay, I'm not familiar with that, no. I think it's a manga. There was an, a Nintendo game, by the way. It was great. A, a Blues Brothers Nintendo game? Yeah, yeah. I used to play that all the time. What Is was the goal? To get the I band know. back together? Did you have to like defeat I, I Aretha can, Franklin to get back? I can Murphy barely remember that? my teenage years. I can't go back to my uh, nine, ten years old years. So this was so. from... Well, obviously not from 1980, but from what the probably like 88, 89, I'm okay, guessing. Yeah. Something like you that. know, yeah. what's interesting, though, Josh, is we're talking about this as like one of these kind of first like big action comedies, which you might not think of it as that, but it is. And like action comedy became the dominant genre of comedy in the last decade with like The Rock and Kevin Hart teaming up and stuff like that. So uh, way ahead of its time in some ways, this film. Yeah, well, we also talked about action comedy becoming a big deal in the 1980s when we talked about Lethal Weapon and Beverly Hills Cop. Cop. Right. Yeah, I mean, those movies clearly influenced by this or the groundwork for those movies was set by this. And of course, Landis eventually directed Beverly Hills Cop 3. Not great. But was it was a hit, though. It was a hit. It was a hit. Those movies have always been hits. So, Jason, I, I wonder... You know, this is the first movie based on a Saturday Night Live sketch, and then there wasn't much for a while, and the 90s were really a boom era for that. But 
Do you have a favorite SNL movie? Is this your favorite SNL movie? This is, Josh, but right behind this might be a film called Wayne's World, which uh, we might be getting to in a future season. We might. And I love I love Wayne's World. And I feel like Wayne's World actually probably does a lot of similar things to this movie that for whatever reason (laughs) I enjoy there and that I did not as much enjoy here. But yeah, Wayne's World certainly would be my favorite of those movies. And it's been a while. I think MacGruber in in 2010 was the last SNL feature film. Hilarious. I I love Uh, MacGruber. eh. But I wonder if that has played out, if that's not really a thing that this sort of current pop culture landscape would support if Lauren Michaels is trying to make SNL sketches nah, in the movies. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's just I think it depends on the character at this point, you know, and and again, it's a different thing. It probably wouldn't be released on, um, you know, in the theaters, but like the MacGruber series went straight to Peacock. You could see a total, you know, one of these characters getting a Peacock movie. Yeah. Chad. Chad, the movie. I'm trying to think of a Chad. Chad's not on SNL. That's her own character. No, what's the Pete Davidson character? Is oh, his name Chad? Ta- oh, I thought you meant uh, Nassim Pedrad. Oh, okay. He's the recurring character. That's the only. That was the only recurring SNL character I could think of. Anyway, that sounds like it would be an SNL character. Yeah, maybe yeah. not named Chad, but it's the Pete Davidson character who's indifferent to everything. Okay, that's basically the right. whole the Whatever. whole bit. Anyway, <laughs> but yeah. SNL is like still. Um, you know, it had those few down years, which it always seems to do every decade or so. And now, and then has become yet again essential to pop culture. It is in some ways that are perhaps a bit annoying, but certainly people talk about SNL a lot. It's still a big launching pad for comedy stars. It's a big place that people look to for political comedy these days, which I'm less enthused about. But you're right. It it somehow has managed to maintain its place in the pop culture zeitgeist, which is amazing. This was the first SNL movie, correct? Yes. Yes, so. it was. This was the first movie based on an SNL sketch. And it didn't really, like I said, the 90s were kind of this heyday. It was really Wayne's World that launched this whole trend of SNL sketch movies. It didn't Despite the success of the Blues Brothers, they didn't suddenly start putting all this stuff into production, possibly because SNL hadn't been on for as long at this point. It had only been around for five years when this movie came out versus by the time we got to the 90s, there was a much longer history of those sketches and the idea that they could be turned into larger properties. So that became a bigger thing in the 90s. Hey, Josh, you know, another thing that this film maybe influenced actors trying to be musicians we have a lot of yeah. those around. yep 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 we can we can trace this movie to uh the return of bruno maybe <laughs> or party all the time or other 80s comedy stars attempting to to be musicians yeah that we can blame this movie for that that is unfortunate but um but it worked for the blues brothers i think that's the thing is we think of Bruce Willis or Eddie Murphy's music career as a joke, but the Blues Brothers were hugely successful. So it's not surprising that someone would look at that and say, I can do it too. You know, Josh, I think we agree that I was right. That's, that's always, we'll just take that sound clip and put it in every episode, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, do you have anything else you want to add? on? No, I mean, I, I highly recommend this film, but you guys don't. But, you know, I mean, if nothing else, we've kind of laid out why it was such an important film. I still think it's fun and funny, and I uh, would love to hear some feedback from uh, our listeners. Yeah, let us know. Tell me how wrong I am. Me and Dave. Get Dave in there, too. Tell us how wrong we are about this movie. It certainly is an incredibly important and influential film that I'm glad that I saw, even if I didn't love it. So that is the Blues Brothers, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can check us out on social media. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all the socials. Uh, my website, Go for Jason, was when in one of those police cars that crashed during the Blues Brothers, so it's not really functioning as it should. But AwesomeMovieYear.com is, as well as our socials, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. You can check out my also feeble website at JoshBellHatesEverything.com. And check me out on Facebook at Josh Bell Hates Everything and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, and let us know how much you love the Blues Brothers.
because most people do. Yeah, that's where you can go to really tear into us for not loving yeah. the Blues Brothers. But no, it's interesting because like I mentioned all those movies of excess in 1980. This is an interesting year that we're covering to see kind of the changing form of, uh, of, of film at this time. One might even say it's an awesome movie year. Mm -hmm. One might. So what is in our next episode, Jason? Next episode, it's going to be interesting because there was no Sundance. So we went back to the Venice Film Festival and picked the Golden Lion winner. And it's by John Cassavetes. It's called Gloria, another essential American filmmaker. So tune in next time for Gloria. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. Hey, Josh. In the next episode, we're getting the band back together to talk about movies.